You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, I'm Stephanie Ruff. And I'm Aviva Nabeski. We're the hosts of the Dressage Today podcast, where you can find us talking about anything and everything dressage related. Our conversations span the world of dressage from leading riders to local level dressage heroes. We're talking training advice, showing tips, and sharing stories to inspire your own dressage journey. So tune in, then tack up. Welcome to the Dressage Today podcast, sponsored by Saddlery Brands. Today, we'll be talking to another trainer who has done well with an alternative breed in dressage. We'll be speaking with Kathy Echternock, who has been successful with Morgan Horses. But to start our conversation today, Aviva has some news to share. Yeah, it's not really great news. So I know that over the, what is it, two years that we've been doing the podcast, I've talked a lot about my horse, Leo, um, and how difficult he is and what a challenge he's been to me. Um, And I've beaten myself up over the years that we're not moving along in a faster clip and doing better. And things have been sort of coming to a head. Um, Over the summer, right before I left for Israel, he was diagnosed with a deep digital flexor tendon injury. And he was basically on stall rest for five months. And when I started riding him again, he felt fabulous better than he's ever felt. And I got really optimistic that things were going to, this was going to be it. We were really going to move forward. He's, you know, 12 years old, he's mature, he's ready to go to work. And we were doing great. And we got to that same place that we always get, basically the line between second and third level. And he started to have really bizarre behaviors again um, and got kind of dangerous under saddle, not Mm -hmm. in terms of bad behavior, but in terms of lack of balance. Um, So I had him tested for, you know, all the usual suspects, EPM and Lyme and vitamin E deficiencies. And I had him checked out by uh, my chiropractor and we talked at length with my vet and the decision was made um, and I took him up to New Bolton Center, um, the University of Pennsylvania, to have what they call a sports medicine evaluation. And I was pretty sure I knew what I was going to hear when I got up there. Um, and I did. And his diagnosis is that um, he has equine degenerative myeloencephalopathy. And I don't know if our listeners are familiar with it. Um, The word degenerative kind of tells you everything you need to know, right? Yeah. Um, It is um, a neurological condition and it's basically, I don't know how else to describe it. For me, the best understanding of it is it's sort of similar to multiple sclerosis in people. Hmm. Um, It seems to be something that's around the brainstem and it, They're not really sure what causes it. There seems to be a correlation with a vitamin vitamin E deficiency at some point in the horse's life. They think most likely in utero or very early as a foal. Wow. And um, eventually what happens is that the horses become very ataxic and unbalanced. And some of them become extraordinarily dangerous. Um, And they'll just sort of snap and attack their people. 
Um, they can become very spooky. You know, there's a whole myriad of, of symptoms. But when I unloaded Leo off the trailer, I had a whole team of vets and vet techs and vet students, and they were lovely and wonderful. And there was internal medicine and there was orthopedic sports medicine. And there was Dr. Amy Johnson, who was the world's leading expert on this disease. And literally, I they walked him away and walked him back. And the sports medicine doc said, well, he's 2.5 neurologic and he's lame in his right hind. And the more we did stuff, the more we talked, um, the more stuff came to light. And I had sent them about a two page um, history on him and his weird behaviors and the difficulties that I'd had. And they kept asking me questions and my answer kept being, well, sometimes, sometimes he does this and sometimes he does that. And well, you know, sometimes yes and sometimes no. And the more I, and I guess I had never just sort of put the whole history together, but the more I talked, the more I realized that the, the one word that really sort of summed up Leo was unpredictable mm. and unpredictability is sort of a hallmark of this disease. So they did all kinds of diagnostics and um, basically it's a disease of exclusion. There's no way to definitively um, diagnose it until necropsy. So not until the horse is dead and they can look at the brain. So they look for everything and little by little they rule out everything until there's nothing left to rule out. And at the end of the day, if there's nothing left to rule out, they give you a diagnosis of EDM. So. We left New Bolton with a diagnosis of EDM. Um, I was told that he is unsafe to ride um, because he could become a toxic at any point. He could right. become dangerous at any point. Um, he could be fine for 10 years yeah. and he could deteriorate in 10 days. They don't know. So unfortunately, the saga of Leo is that he is now not really enjoying his retirement because he misses, you know, the, mm. the stuff that's involved with riding. Um, but he has a home with me until it's time. Um, they actually offered to euthanize him while I was there. Oh, wow. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, I just, I can't yeah. do it. He's, he's. Right now, he's relatively healthy and all the rest of it, and I just couldn't do it. So yeah. um, I will hopefully not wait too long, um, and then I will drive him back up to New Bolton, and they will euthanize him, and they will necropsy him, and they will study him, and hopefully they'll find some answers, and maybe, you know, somebody else won't have to go through this. Right. Um, there's some very interesting stuff on the internet. Anybody who's interested, if you just Google Amy Johnson, um, New Bolton, neurologic vet, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. lots and lots of articles come up and it'll answer questions a lot better than I can. <laughs> um, but you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we talk so much about, our goals for our horses and there's so much that's wrapped up in them. And I, and I can say that over the years I kept modifying my goals for Leo, trying to work with what I had, Yeah. but somehow I always blamed myself for being less than a good enough rider for mm -hmm. him. And I guess what I want our listeners to hear is that, you know, if you, if you, if you do the work, if you're diligent, 
if you ride five, six days a week, if you take lessons, if you, even if you're not always a hundred percent correct, but you, you do the good work and your horse doesn't progress. Sometimes it really isn't you. Yeah. You know, and when you get to that point, then you need to get a vet involved because yeah. maybe there is something that is prohibiting your horse from doing what you want him to do. And maybe there's another road for that horse. Um, or maybe there's something that's the end. So right. I've been beating myself up for five years. And um, so stop maybe that. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't me. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is why he didn't do Cavaletti. <laughs> Right. And this is why I never got to make it to a Cavaletti clinic with Michelle. Um, but um, anyway, it's very sad. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to share with our listeners that um, this is this is the end of the road for him. But I'm still going to be talking about Tiger. Right. So. Well, and most people, if you've if we've been in horses for any amount of time, have maybe not the same story, but a similar story of. Yeah. You know, horses that just didn't work out or things happened or whatever. And yep. They are heartbreaking. It's, they are. Yeah. It's not, it's not for the meek. That's for sure. No. And, no. um, but you certainly took them to the best place you could take them to. You well, know, you know, and, how lucky am I that, you know, Amy yeah. Johnson, you know, happens to be in my backyard, you know, right. two hours isn't exactly my backyard, but no, it's pretty but darn it's, close, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I have to say the experience, they were so, I'm, I'm probably going to cry. I apologize. <laughs> they were so very, very kind. Yeah. Um, they have kept in touch with me via email. At one point they had sent something that sounded like maybe there might be some hope. Mm. And so I sent an email back and kind of said, are you telling me that maybe there's hope? Because I need to know. <laughs> and Amy sent me back this very, very long, very personal email, basically telling me there was no hope mm. and that there was no road back to under saddle work and thanking me for being an advocate for my horse. And I mean, I'm just another patient. I'm nobody special. And she took a lot of time. Yeah. They're pretty special up there. They are. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you certainly can feel good knowing that you did the best you could do for him. Yeah. Thank you. Know. you. Yeah. Okay. We need to stop. Yes, we will. <laughs> we will not talk about that anymore. But um, yeah. So, but we appreciate you sharing your story. Sure. Today's question is not really a question, but That's we have kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> we have gotten this sort of question from several people. We've had a number of people ask us about the skills needed to be a scribe at a show. They okay. want to try it. They've never done it before. Um, scared, but they're intimidated. Yes, yeah. because it's a it's a scary. So of all the sh you know the the show positions, that one's a little bit more intimidating yes. than some of the others. So they were just asking if you had any advice you could share. Absolutely, you know PVDA, which is the Potomac Valley Dressage uh, the Dressage Association. <laughs> say that three times fast. <laughs> Um, this is what happens when you cry. Um, just did a wonderful seminar on scribing, and I believe it is on the PVDA website. So, 
you know, people who are interested, pvda.org, um, take a quick look. Um, it's It was fabulous. And it talked a lot about the different kinds of scribing. Um, so I get why scribing is intimidating because number one, judges are intimidating and you're sitting next to a judge. Um, number two, there's a whole lot of potentially writing involved and you're afraid. Um, but it really is, I think it's the, the most fun job. Yeah. Um, because you don't get to see very much, but you get to hear a lot and you get to hear the biases of your judge and you get to hear sort of as they go up the levels, what it is that they, you know, how their, their focus changes and what their, their comments are. Um, for those shows that are still using handwritten sheets, um, it's important to have legible handwriting. Yeah. It's important to remember that sometimes it's cold. And <laughs> if you have arthritis, and I'm and I'm not being funny, if you have arthritis and it's cold, don't be a scribe. Yeah. Because you're not going to survive. You're going to be in so much pain by the end of the day because it's cold and the cold exacerbates it. Sure. Um, most judges will work with you and explain to you how they judge and how you can best follow them. Um, at the lower levels, most judges will give two comments. One will tend to be something that the rider is doing well, and one is something that the rider could improve upon to get a higher score. Um, abbreviation is the secret. So right. if your judge says, you know, something about a circle, you make an O. <laughs> if they say up, you make an up arrow. If they talk about a corner, you make an L. <laughs> and you just, you know, transition is trans. And I've even had some judges who are wonderful who will abbreviate their comments as they talk to you. So they'll say, you know, up trans needs FWD, <laughs> you know, or something like that. <laughs> right. So that you, you have your, you know, your, your, abbreviations yeah. right there. Um, there are, there is a, an approved abbreviation list. And I believe that that's online through USDF as well. Um, you know, the, there are a lot of responsibilities of being a scribe. You need to make sure that you're in the right box with your judge. You need to know to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you need to know not to tell the judge, oh, yeah, this is Susie Q. And she just bought this horse and it was imported from Germany and it's a Grand Prix horse. And, you know, Susie Q's riding intro A. Um, trust me, the judge is going to know that this is a schoolmaster. Um, but, you know, you don't say things like that. Um, at the end of the test, don't talk because at that point, the judge is now doing the collectives and writing the further remarks. When the the runner comes to pick up the test, don't have a chat about what you're having for lunch or what you did last night because, again, you know, the judge is working. Mm -hmm. um, if you have questions for the judge, ask the judge before you start. If I have questions, may I ask you? And the judge might say, ask me during the break, you know, write, write it down, ask me during the break, or you can, you can check with me if we have time between rides. The scribe's responsibility is to make sure that the judge is on time to very um, politely say, um, I just checked my watch. We're running about five minutes late. It's the scribe's responsibility to make sure that they know what what rider is in the ring and what test is being written. Right. And that's why, you know, we've talked a little bit about ring etiquette. That's why it's so important for the riders to come up and introduce themselves mm -hmm. to the 
the judge slash scribe, hi, I'm number 21. I'm writing training level test three. Yeah. You know, so that the scribe knows that they have the right sheet. Um, if you run into trouble, immediately tell your judge. Judges are nice people for the most part, <laughs> but the scribe can make or break a judge's day. So if you feel like you can't keep up, let your judge know, hey, I'm really having troubles. I'm going to talk with management as soon as I can and see if I can get you a better scribe. Yeah. Because the, the judge can elect to make fewer comments. Right. You know? Right. Um, the other thing to remember is whatever the judge says stays in the judge's box. Yeah. If you hear your judge say something under her breath or if your judge volunteers information about, oh, my God, I can't believe I just saw that. That was so bad. You don't go out and share that the next day or later that day. That's private. So that's the handwritten ones. The e-scribing is a little bit trickier. There are a couple of different computer systems out there for e-scribing. And each one is a little bit different. And each one is more or less user-friendly. And I am not going to volunteer my opinions. <laughs> I'm going to let our listeners figure that out for themselves. Um, most shows that do e-scribing and it, most of the licensed competitions at this point have gone to e-scribing and some of the um, schooling shows even have. But if you're going to e-scribe, most organizations will give you a brief um, intro to how it's done. Mm. So you're not going in blind. Right. Um, sometimes you can practice online the day before. Sometimes you can go in really early in the morning and sit down with somebody and figure it out. Um, I am not the most computer savvy person <laughs> in the world. And the first time that I e-scribed, our Wi-Fi went out um, <sighs> and it was very stressful. Yeah. Um, but we got everything done. Um, some of the shows that use e-scribing have the judges um, use a recorder so that they're recording as they go and and you are e-scribing as you go um, so that if something is lost, if the Wi-Fi goes out, there is at least a, a record of oh, some kind. Right. The e-scribing is, is, is easy in a lot of ways because everything is right there for you. You know, the, the next rider is right there. It, all you have to do is, you know, click to get between movements. The problem is that if you make a mistake, you know, things still keep going. Right. And with a pen and pencil, you can make a little notation to yourself or yeah. you can put your finger on that box and go back to it. With the e-scribing, you have to be just a little bit more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I am not a computer genius and I did it. So <laughs> how hard can it be? Um, <laughs> but it is, yes, it is a little intimidating. I What I suggest to people is if you really do have an interest in it, it's a fabulous way to learn. Yeah. Um, ask if you can sit with a judge and a scribe for the morning um, and, and, and just watch what's going on and see whether or not it's something that you feel comfortable doing. Yeah. Um, if you can, do it at a schooling show and ask to do the intro tests because there's more time. Right. You know, when, when you're scribing the FEI tests, for the most part, those things go so quickly. Yeah. The judges generally only give critical comments, and that doesn't mean negative comments. That 
There's a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, things that could be better, um, things that could bring the score up. Um, So there isn't generally as much to write or type, but things go fast. Right. Yeah. So, you know, starting with something like the intro test is it can be very helpful because it gives you an idea. The other thing that I found is that most judges sort of get into um, a rhythm and as a scribe, you get used to the judge's rhythm. Right. You know, you can tell by the comments that they make what the score is going to be, which is wonderful, right? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. If the judge says, wonderful transition, you don't expect to give a five. Right. Yeah. You know, but if you hear breaks and canter, you don't expect to hear an eight either. Um so it's it's I think it's a wonderful thing to do. It is a kind of scary thing to do. Um, all judges are required to do scribing hours as part of their education process. So as a writer who has any interest in competing, I think there is n- there is almost nothing you can do better than scribing because you will learn so much. Right. Um, you know, the view from C is very, very different than the view (laughs) from outside the ring. Yeah. So, you know, even though you don't get to see much because most of the time you're looking down and writing and making sure that you're in the right box, you have to glance up and see what movement is going on so that you know that you're in the right place in the test with the judge. Um, You start to see the things that the judge sees and you start to see that the things that you thought weren't necessarily a big deal are a big deal. And you start to see the things that you didn't think the judge could see. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the, the very, very long answer is, yeah, it's scary, but you should do it if you can. Right. And, and absolutely it's a wonderful experience. It is. I, I haven't done it for a while, but I always enjoyed doing it. So, um, yes, those are wise words. Once again, (laughs) the wise of Eva strikes again. (laughs) And if you would like to hear Aviva's wise words about something else, uh, please feel free to email us or reach out to us on social media. And when we come back, we will have our conversation with Kathy Ecknernock. Have you heard about Bates Saddles? Exciting new dressage saddle, the Bates Isabel Icon. Combining over 35 years of competition experience and 90 years of saddle innovation, the Bates Isabel Icon stands alone in high-performance dressage as truly state-of-the-art. Your journey begins here. Watch the personal video with Isabel Wirth at BatesSaddles.com. Kathy Ecknernock has been a professional trainer and writer for more than 30 years. She's earned her USDF bronze, silver, and gold medals and her gold bar and won USDF year-end awards through Grand Prix. Introduced to dressage by Nancy Tomlinson and Elizabeth Madliner, Kathy's primary influences included Pam Goodrich, Conrad Schumacher, Bill Warren, and the late Uva Steiner. She has teamed with Beth Brooke to operate Ecternock Dressage at Broad Run Farm in Poolsville, Maryland. So thank you, Kathy, for joining us today on the Dressage Today podcast. Well, thank you for choosing to talk to me. I feel very honored. 
<laughs> well, one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you is because you have had so much success in dressage with Morgan horses. So we wanted to learn a little bit more about that. But to start, how did you get involved with that breed? Well, you know, many, many years ago when I first moved to Maryland and I was um, had just left working under the umbrella of Maryland Horse Center, I went out to teach at Schoolie Mill Park for this girl and she had a very lovely Morgan horse and he had a couple of training and soundness issues and she ended up giving him to me because she was going back to college. And he was a, a wonderful horse, not ever famous. He did very well locally, like PVDA scoring shows. His name was Drifter. And I showed him through fourth level. And then he, I used him as his schoolmaster. And he, um, like Elizabeth Brooke, who is my co-trainer, uh, she did her first dressage show on Drifter. Um, many people rode him in my barn. He was a very sweet very smart, very devious little horse. <laughs> and then uh, later was probably the bigger impact in me getting started with having a lot of Morgan horses to train was finding um, Black Tie, who um, was a Morgan who I showed to Grand Prix. I bought him as a, a just broke eight-year-old. He had been trained as a driving horse and had been a stallion. And he had just been gelded and he was at a farm that was selling warm blood sort of in a back corner. And I was like, I want to look at that horse. <laughs> and I ended up buying him and he just ended up being a dream horse for me. He, oh. you know, showed to Grand Prix. I did USCT classes with him. He really sort of revitalized, I would say, my career. I mean, it mm. wasn't exactly failing, but it wasn't <laughs> doing great. And, you know, because of him, a lot of people sent me Morgan horses to, to ride. And a lot of people who had Morgan horses took lessons. So it just kind of, you, you just sort of fell into it then, It huh? just literally fell on my head. It wasn't yeah. a, a definite big choice, but <laughs> it, it worked really well for me. <laughs> what do you like so much about them? I, I Full disclosure, I know Kathy pretty well, and I've, I've seen her ride quite a bit. I've even judged her, and <laughs> she makes every horse look fabulous. But tell, tell us what you like so much about Morgans. You know, I really, I don't need a big horse, and a lot of the Morgans I've ridden have been small horses that are sturdy and big bodied and move big. So I've always liked that because they're sort of foolers. You go in the barn and they look like ponies and you take yeah. them in the yeah. and they look like horses, yeah. which I really like. Um, I generally have loved their minds. There are horses that they can be hot, they can be silly, but they're rarely randomly spooky. They rarely want to kill you. Um, <laughs> this is like a that. good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know that a lot of other horse breeds are like that, but I think because Morgans uh, have been developed as a family horse, mm -hmm that they have really good qualities that way. Whereas a lot of the warm bloods have been developed as, as, you know, fantastic, beautiful sport horses. 
Right. But they're not always great to ride if you're not pretty advanced. Yeah. And specifically doing, you know, dressage or show jumping. And the the Morgans, especially for people getting into dressage, quite often are a little bit more um, forgiving and gentle than, you know, a a granted beautiful brand for (laughs) a long time for sport riding warm blood. Yeah. What do you find, and you probably kind of touched on this already, but what do you find are their strengths and weaknesses for the actual sport of dressage? Well, I think, you know, to be honest, if somebody said to me, I want to be a super serious, nationally recognized dressage rider, I wouldn't say go buy a Morgan. Yeah. I'd say go buy a warm blood. (laughs) But... If somebody said to me, I really want a a super nice horse that I can learn on, that I can train myself with your help, that I can ride. I'd say, let's try to find a nice Morgan. Yeah. You've had a lot of very nice Morgans that have been very successful. Yes, I've been very lucky that way. I've found recently it's a little harder to find them. Some of the... um, Sport horse breeders have sort of uh, disappeared, which is a name. There's still some around, but um, it, it's harder to, to find uh, trained, you know, started Morgan mm-hmm. than it used to be. But um, do you think that the, the breed has changed or do you think that breeders are breeding them for different sport? I think that there's always been a strong number of people breeding them for the uh quote unquote show ring, which is more right. than battle seat horses or driving. Yeah. And okay. there are fewer people breeding them as sport horses. I think in the West, like there's a very successful breeder, um, Sally Anderson, who breeds really nice sport horse Morgans and knows those out West, you know, who's breeding really nice sport horse Morgans, which I'm not as familiar with. So they're out there. It's just harder to find right under my nose here on the East Coast. So what, there have been a couple of of breeders. Sorry, Stephanie, a couple no, no. of breeders over the years. I know when I see, you know, some of the Morgans that are going out and being successful, they they either have statesmen or blue and white as part of their names. Right. The statesman horses. And that was Lynch Box. She bred strong sport horses for a long time. And she was killed in a horse accident a few years ago. Oh, no. So we're missing that breeding. Um, yeah. The blue and white Morgans were wonderful nicely bred Morgans. That was Joanna Kelly. And Mm -hmm. she, I believe, has retired from breeding and does Morgan Mm. horse rescue. Yeah. And uh, that couldn't, that could be a little inaccurate. No, you're, I, I, I know her. Yeah, she, uh, she is. And they just recently, she sold her farm in Maryland and moved to uh, Aiken. So she's Uh, now in South Carolina. And um, uh, the Whipper Will Morgans, which, Black Tie was a Whipper Will Morgan, and uh, my other Grand Prix horse I trained, Whipper Will Dorado. Uh, that breeder has also passed away. And mm-hmm. I know that people are carrying on that breeding. It's just not quite as local. Whipper Will was Connecticut, but I think that most of the people who are supporting that breeding have are more out west now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and Spring Hollow Morgans, uh, which is uh, Lynn Skillington and her trainer, Laurie Shoemake, have bred some very nice Morgans uh, for sport um, and carried on a lot of the statesman lines. And they're in Pennsylvania. Uh, so they it's still wonderful access, but they usually mm-hmm. can sell them as, as baby horses. Yeah. Yeah. I've been saying for years, if I went to buy another horse, I would seriously look at Morgans. Yeah. And most of that, Kathy, is because of you and your successes <laughs> and just watching the Morgans that you've trained in the show ring, just, you know, you riding them and your students riding them. They just look so level headed. <laughs> the ones that, like I said, I've been very lucky to have worked with some really, really nice horses and also the mythic Morgans. Uh, which is the horse I'm showing FEI now is Katie Hubble's horse, who she also is showing, um, Mythic Pamba. They've bred some very nice horses. I think that they mostly have been able to sell them very young. And one of my students had a Mythic Morgan that did super well. So what um, what would you consider some weaknesses of, of the breed for dressage, or do they have any? Oh, I, I think they do. Um, I think one of the weaknesses is some of the really nice sport horse Morgans were really strong in driving. And the driving frame for dressage is a little different. They can sort yeah. of test it because they're pulling a cart, and they can move with suspension and power with their hind legs out behind them. Uh-huh. And also, they they weren't bred for a super well-developed canner, even though some of them had canners that could be well-developed. So I think that's a little bit of a weakness. Um, and the show Morgans, uh, you know, that were bred for saddle seat, you know, are bred to be very upheaded. And you might find some of them. Um, one of the horses that I showed was really bred, highly bred for... Um, the show ring was a uh, magnetic top copy and he, he just couldn't excite him enough. And he, he was very upheaded, but he had a beautiful neck. It was shaped correctly. So you have to sort of pick and choose. Yeah. Um, and they're mm-hmm. definitely out there, but it's not as deep of a pool as the warm blood pool. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, basically, uh, you have to acknowledge that they do have a weakness in their canner gate, mm. even some of the, the excellent ones. So it's just a matter of whether or not you can develop that canner to do all the movements they need. Black tie had a horrible canner, but a <laughs> wonderful brain. Yeah. And I could influence him to do all the movements. Right. That were needed throughout the canner. And Whipper Will Dorado, the same thing. He does not have a naturally good canner. But he was so darn smart, strong, <laughs> and easy to influence, he was able to get trained up. Wow. What advice would you give to somebody who's riding a non-traditional breed in dressage? Um, I give them the advice that um, if they're... Uh, really interested in the journey of dressage, you know, and they've picked a horse that is showing an aptitude to be trained in dressage. Remember 
that they they chose that path. <laughs> it's really easy to get say, oh, they won't look at anything else but a warm blood. And I don't believe that's true. I believe for every time I've thought, gee, I wish that judge had given me a second look, that I've had a judge that has said, wow, that's interesting, and maybe given me a better look than I deserved. Mm. I think that usually comes out in the wash. And I also think that most judges, um, you can never make a blanket statement, are interested in seeing a variety of horses in the show ring. I don't think that they're so pigeonholed for one breed. Right. Well, that, that's a good thing. No, it's a great thing. Yeah. It should, it should I be. I like the idea that it comes out in the wash, yeah. that the yeah. ones that do have the bias are, are, you know, balanced by the ones who are excited to see something that isn't traditional, that's doing things correctly, maybe with not with the same, you know, exciting gates, but is, you know, dressage is about doing things correctly. correctly. Yeah. It, it's not yeah. just, you know, it should be about the training and it should be about the horse's movement. And as long as you don't want to go be Olympic, which, you know, real, realistically, yeah. how many people are Olympic? Yeah. Most um, of us don't. <laughs> you know, you want to, you want to really pick a horse that really suits you. And I think that that's the best advice I can give anybody. Pick something that suits you. Yeah. That you can ride. You don't pick something wonderful that you have no chance of being able to ride. That is good advice. And that, that's <laughs> wonderful advice. over the years. I mean, that, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. How many people go out and buy the nine movers and then have to dumb them down to a five just to be able to ride them? Right. You want to pick something that you can enhance its life and movement, not something that you can't because right. if you pick something you can ride, you'll enhance its life and it will enhance your life. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a lot, quite a few years, you know, and um, as, as you get older, what did, and a lot of dressage riders are, older or at least over 40. So what kind of advice would you give to those who are maybe struggling a little bit um, more than they used to if they've ridden for a long time, you know, with confidence and that sort of thing? Have you faced anything like that? or Oh, absolutely. What would you, um, yeah? I am very lucky that I am very sturdy. So I think that that's a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not as quick or as balanced as I used to be, which right. you have to accept that. And, you know, there are certain things I'm not willing to try to foray into. <laughs> um, and I also think that I still I, I really try to pick uh, my rides via confidence. I'm not going to to deal with horses that make that I don't feel confident on because I'm not doing them a favor or right. me a favor. And I think that as you get older, you'd have to be foolish to not acknowledge the fact that you might lose some of your athleticism. But I also think usually as we get older, we've also gained better technique and yeah. a, a better ability to, to pick and choose what we can do really well. Yeah. 
That's definitely true. In my mind, I'm ha- I have a hard time because in my mind, I can still, my mind doesn't realize how old my body is. <laughs> well, I oh, think mine um, does. <laughs> my mother always had the best quote about that. She uh, said, oh, every morning when I wake up, I feel exactly like I did when I was 18 until I move. Ah, <laughs> yes. And I always thought that was very uh, a very good way to look at it, a good humor and yes. a reminder that we are the same people we were when we were younger. But even though old age is not a disease in and of itself, we do have to acknowledge that the years and accidents and wear and tear, you know, both affect our confidence and our physicality. And I also yeah. think one of the best pieces of advice I can give anybody who is an older rider is yes, ride enough, but also make sure you do enough stretching and exercise. Yeah. You don't have to jog. You can do yoga. You can do Pilates. You can find good stretches because elasticity is more important in some ways than anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, having come from a physical therapist family, that's been uh, put into my head quite a bit. And I think that's really <laughs> well, <true>. you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why you're so sturdy, right? You've been, you've been I doing think, that for a long time. Yeah. Well, and I think that the, the genetics of, of, of at least one side of my family were always, you know, for, for sturdiness, which is <laughs> a blessing, which I, I am very happy to have now, maybe didn't appreciate earlier in life. Right. Yeah. Well, our last question is one we've been asking everyone because Aviva and I are putting together a book list and uh, a reading list. So we were just wondering if you had a favorite horse book or or just a regular book of any kind that fiction or nonfiction that, that you would like to share with us. Well, um, the nonfiction always go to book for me for dressage is the Lundquist Dressage Manual. Mm. I always found that to be super practical. It doesn't try to teach you how to ride via a book, but it's a great reference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an older book. You can yeah. still get it, even though it's not in print. And it's a it's a great non nonfiction dressage manual. Yes. Um, and you know, in the fiction department, I know that um, I've always loved the books uh, that started with my friend Flicka and went on to uh, Thunderhead and Green uh-huh. Grass of Wyoming, which yeah. are old books, but they had the horses. Plus, they had just a good regular story. Yes. And I, I yep. you know, I, I was reading, uh, my mother passed away about two years ago, and she always loved those books and green grass of Wyoming. So I had been mm-hmm. reading that book to her. And so that will always be very dear to my heart. Yeah. Now I read those as yeah. a kid. I loved them. Those were great. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and, and of course I've, you know, well, Kathy, I already books, have these books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, well, when, darn. I have Lundquist and I have all of those books. You're supposed yeah. to be giving me new things for my list. <laughs> okay, we're the Crawdads. That's thing. okay. We're the Crawdads. <laughs> that is a great book and also a great movie. Okay, thank you. Read them okay. too. <laughs> you have that already too. Okay, Haven't well. seen the movie, read the book. <laughs> the, the book was fabulous. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of a reader. <laughs> 
I'm a both. Sometimes okay. I'll watch the movie, then read the book. Or okay, that'll person. that'll that'll be that'll be added to my list then. There yeah, the you movie, go. The yeah. movie was excellent. <laughs> well, you can just reread them, Aviva. You can read them again. <laughs> I can. I can. <laughs> well, we will still, even though Aviva ha- has them all, we will still add them to our list because there might be other people yes. who have not read them and they are definitely really good books to recommend. Yes. So thank yes, you. Thank you for imparting us with that wisdom. And um, we also appreciate you sharing your love of the Morgan horse. And hopefully that might inspire some people out there that might be looking at a Morgan to uh, think about it a little more seriously. Well, I certainly hope so. They have been good to me. And um, uh, I think they can be good to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, talking with us today. Okay. Well, again, thank you all for choosing me. I really um, feel very honored and it was really nice to talk with both of you. Thanks for listening to the Dressage Today podcast. If you've missed any episodes or to subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Learn more and read in-depth training articles at dressagetoday.com or you can visit our subscription video site, ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Happy riding, and we'll see you at X. The Dressage Today podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.